The Toby Gribbon Show. Highlights. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Dennis King is a composer and singer who is a member of the family ensemble, the King Brothers, and the composer of the theme from Black Beauty, which won an Ivor Novello Award. And he's on the line with us here. How are you doing today? I'm fine, actually. Thankfully, the weather's uh, cooler, which has been a bit hot last year. Today, it's it's a real contrast. It's uh, quite fresh down where we are. We're We're on the coast pretty close. It's called Warburswick. Mm. In Suffolk, it's near, um, I don't know if you know this part of the world, but it's up near um, the East Coast, really. It's, it's yeah. East Anglia, but it's a, it's a lovely spot. And we're yeah. close to the sea, so we get sea breeze even when it's stiflingly hot. It's, it makes life much more pleasant. Yeah. Well, I know the Norfolk coast quite well, and that's quite nice at this time of year. So I'm guessing Suffolk is pretty similar. Yeah, very, very similar to us too. Yeah. 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 Good. So where did your love of music come from in the first place? A very, very long time ago, needless to say. My influence was my dad, actually. He was not a professional musician at all, but he had a, a, a wonderful ear for music. And, <clears throat> excuse me, he could he could sort of knock out a tune on anything. And my first vague memories of hearing anything vaguely musical was dad. It was literally the, the sort of just after, uh, after World War II. Uh, we lived in a place called Hornchurch. Church. I was born there. That's in Essex, sort of Essex, London, really. Yeah. And, and uh, Dad used to knock out a tune on the piano. I mean, uh, we we, uh, we always had the piano all upright in, in the house, and he would uh, he could only play in one key, which I found out as a hold up in the key of D, which is two sharps. But he played, you know, he picked up. He had this ear, and he picked up on tunes and whatever. And he realised, or he noticed, uh, that I had a, a similar kind of facility to be able to uh, hear something and then sit down at the piano. And this is the age of well, about six, five or six, I should think. Um, and he, he, although I was the youngest of three brothers, um, I was the only one that showed any sort of basic, uh, well, I suppose, I don't know you'd call it a gift, I don't know, for, for being musical. And, uh, and he encouraged that and got me piano lessons and whatever. Uh, from the age, I started piano lessons when I was about seven or eight, I think. Um, but he always encouraged me with music. And uh, I I kind of cottoned on pretty easily. It, it, never, it was never a great slog for me to... Um, 
to to learn because I and I was never a great student of music because I, even today, hundreds of years later, I I don't, I'm not a great sight reader. I can read music, but unlike some piano players who just sit down and rattle off anything they see, it always took me a bit of time. But I made up for it by having this ear. So even if it wasn't the written notes, I could sort of make it work. Uh, so he was he was my, the great encouragement, certainly, no question. Yeah, and of course you were in the family ensemble, the King Brothers. Would you say it was fairly inevitable that you would become a composer and a musician growing up in this family? Not necessarily. Composing uh, was sort of slightly later on. I, I always liked, I mean, from the age of probably about, oh, what happened very briefly, because I can ramble on for hours, I'm sure you don't want that, but <laughs> what happened was uh, I, as I, as I said, I was the first of the three brothers, even though I was the youngest, to show any uh, uh, a real a real gift for music, and uh, they uh, the uh, my father encouraged the other two brothers, neither of whom took it uh, were were very natural. They weren't natural musicians at all. Actually, yeah. they really had to struggle. I mean, Mike, who's the eldest, he played a bit of guitar, but that's mostly sort of strumming chords and things. Tony, who who played double bass, the old fashioned <coughs> excuse me stand up double bass, he struggled a bit. He had lessons, and it took them both of them a while just to knock out a tune. Whereas, as I say, I found it relatively easy. Um, and he thought that there was sort of potential there to have a, a brother's act. Uh, but well, the first uh, time when I went, uh, or in fact, my mother <laughs> comes into the picture, she wrote away to the BBC to see if she could, if we could appear on the radio. Uh, this is in '94. 50, about 1950 or something like that. I was 10 um, and uh, uh, I was too young. They they weren't interested in auditioning anybody under the age of 12, I think it was. Uh, So we we did, but we did sort of local uh, talent competitions, just the two, Mike and I started it off, uh, guitar and piano, and we sang a bit. Neither of our voices had broken, so it was such very high voice soprano sound. And we sang a couple of tunes and we went on talent contests and we did usually pretty well for what they were. Um, Dad thought it was time to bring in the other brother who always sat in the corner and did nothing. And he, as I say, he, he fixed him up with a, a friend at work at Ford Motor Company where my father worked who played double bass in a string quartet and he thought bass would be perfect to match with the piano and the guitar. So uh, suddenly there were three of us, uh, and uh, that was when my mother wrote again to the BBC, and this time they accepted us mm. for an audition for a, a, a BBC television show called Shop Window. This is 1952, um, and we were, you know, we were very young. Well, I was 12, and uh, I was very small. I still am very small, actually. Um, but uh, we looked young and all the rest of it, baby faces, and we all dressed alike, and we all neat scrumped and uh, went on television in those days of course there was only one television station BBC there was nothing no IT you know nothing and it was live everything was live you went on and you were seen uh, and that was it and we appeared in this uh, shop window and I think because there was nobody else doing that 
kind of boy band stuff. But so we were the first. And uh, we created quite a sensation for, for the time. And uh, we were picked up by an agent and did another television and another television. And it kind of grew from there. And we eventually had a record contract with Parlophone Records and made a couple of fairly successful hit records, I suppose you'd call them. Um, and I, at no time during that was I wildly interested in writing music. or uh, But it, that kind of came gradually when we all only ever recorded um, American songs. I mean, there was no pop scene in Eng uh, English pop scene at that stage. Everything was important in the States, you know. And then we, we would cover records by the Everly Brothers or who were Bill Haley and the Comets and all those. And, and we had a fairly successful career as a, as a trio and appeared with lots of wonderfully famous people um, as a support act. Um, until it all started to, to and in the meantime, I, I uh, decided that I would, I thought I had a, a bit of a, a penchant for writing tunes. And I decided to write and try to write a couple of songs. The first song I ever wrote, funny enough, I remember well, because I wrote the music and the words. And since then, I don't write words, write tunes. I wrote this song called The Feeling, um, uh, uh, which we put on, we big King Brothers, put on the B-side of something we'd recorded. Mm. Um, and to my amazement, about a year after this, because the, the publisher involved had a tie-up with a company in America, and sent all the stuff that, that we did in England over to the States. And through the post came a, a, a 45 of my song, Got a Feeling, sung by none, none other than Doris Day. Wow. And I thought, wow, she <laughs> was a huge star at the time. Uh, and it was quite pretty. It was, I mean, she did it as a, a, an, al an album track or something. Yeah. But I thought, my God, this is it. I've written the first song I ever wrote, it's been recorded by Doris Day. <laughs> Yeah. But that was, wasn't the beginning of it all. I mean, I couldn't write lyrics to save my life. It was a terrible, sort of ordinary piece of work that I'd done. But it encouraged me anyway to write more and write more. And in the meantime, the King Brothers, I don't know if you want to go back on the King Brothers. Or, I mean, uh, the King Brothers kind of faded into in insignificance with the advent of rock and roll and then mm. the, the Liverpool sound, the Beatles, the Stones, all the big, the big bands and the King Brothers sort of decided what I did. I, I didn't want to do this anymore, touring, doing working men's clubs, which was the only work we could get at the time. So I went back to school kind of at the age of 20, 27, 28, um, yeah. to the Guildhall School of Music to study orchestra, which, because I didn't know much about it at all at the time. Um, and, you know, I picked up tips and things. It wasn't hugely successful, but it, it looked good on the CV. You know, he studied at the Guildhall School of Music in London. didn't really study very much. <coughs> Excuse me. But so it, 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 you know, it gave me a, a bit of a grounding, I suppose. And I went on from there, I suppose, with writing and say that, King Brothers disbanded. Uh, the two brothers weren't that thrilled about the idea, but, but they had, you know, it's not like we had, we had a career that was going to go on and on and on and on. It was fading rather rapidly by then. We could only scramble the odd gig. And uh, the other two were married, and I was 
thinking of, of getting married. Uh, I ha- hasten to add it not to the wife I'm married to now. <laughs> um, and uh, my career kind of took off, not not right away. In fact, it, it took a bit of a while to, to get my feet on the ground. But uh, that was the beginning, really, of a, what I considered a second career. And you mentioned that the King brothers have sort of faded into insignificance because of future bands that came along. But... Am I right in saying that the King Brothers were actually Britain's first ever boy band? Yeah, we were. I mean, it sounds ridiculous in retrospect. <laughs> there was, well, there was no other, nobody else like it. Uh, there was no, there were no other little groups of whether brothers or sisters or whatever. But but we we actually played instruments and sang um, and, and kind of went on stage and performed. And we were for the time we were quite sort of polished. And as I said, looked neat and tidy and clean, unlike what was to follow. <laughs> um, we, you know, all nice white, clean white shirts and nice jackets and bow ties, and, mm. and we were we were rather polite. I always thought we, we appealed to a certain uh, sort of matronly crew of women. They, <laughs> oh, aren't they nice? Aren't they sweet? You know that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, which is what we did. So we didn't uh, we, we we didn't break any barriers or anything. It was just a, a rather safe act. Uh, had had its day really in the in the fifties into the sixties and uh, fizzled eventually uh, in 1970 we, we quit as the King Brothers. It's the saddest day of my father's life. That and uh, the Manchester United football team was uh, uh, in that plane crash where they lost half the team many many years ago. My dad was a, was from Manchester and he was fanatical about Manchester United because he was deeply saddened when. Most of the team were killed in a plane crash, but uh, that and the King Brothers disbanding, probably the two saddest days of Dad's life, bless his heart. Yeah. Of course, one of the things you're best known for is writing the theme from Black Beauty. How did you get that job? Because you hadn't actually done any TV composing yet, had you? Well, I hadn't, no, you're right, absolutely right. I was, I was having done this one a short stay at the Guildhall to learn the basics of orchestration because I was although I worked with musicians um, since you know since I was a kid but I didn't know the technical uh, side of things how, how to score for orchestra and what the you know the horns would do what the woodwinds would do what the strings would do and that was what I was trying to learn uh, to enable me to actually orchestrate whatever I'd written or well, with Black Beauty I had a friend at the at um, music publishers in London who had an affiliation with London Weekend Television. Um, um, and I'd done some bits and pieces. I mean, he was a friend of mine and he would always sort of say, well, you know, you might as well have a go at this or that. There's a, there's a TV show coming up and this is... And he called me out of the blue one day and he said, this might suit you. It's uh, London Weekend of planning a TV series about a horse. And I said... Yeah. He said, Black Beauty. I said, yeah. He said, well... They're already they've already started filming, but they haven't decided on what the music would be. Um, but they put it out to sort of tender. I said, what, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, they are asking something like fifteen different composers to submit uh, ideas for the theme." This is they, they feel, felt the series was going to be really popular because it's not it was essentially a kids' show, I suppose which would go out on a Sunday evening at six o'clock in the evening. 
uh, and it was about the horse. These and the, the, the credits would be uh, a horse jumping over uh, in woods, over hedges, and through water. And they needed something really stirring and all that stuff. It's worth a shot. So I, I, um, and I got in touch with the head of music at Love the other weekend, a wonderful man called Harry Rabinovitz. Sadly, no longer with us. Uh, but he, uh, he, he I, I knew him only because when he was a conductor at London Weekend, I met him when I was a King brother, um, and he was wonderful. And he gave me impression he was like a headmaster, a headmaster at school because he was pretty stern, or could be, but there was a little twinkle in his eyes. But for some reason, he thought I had promise. Or so. he said, "It's worth you having a go." I said, "But he said, well, I know there are other composers, but you know, have a shot at it." So I sat down at a little keyboard I had in Hampstead where I was living and knocked out a, a tune on a piece of uh, reel-to-reel tape because there was no, you know, recording was pretty, well, it was early days of it really on a little tape recorder and um, sent the tune in with, a, uh, with just the top line music and uh, Harry, a couple of weeks later, phoned up and he said, the producers have heard your tune and they they rather like it, but he, he said, you're in a bit of a competition at the moment. They also like several other of the tunes. So they whittled it down from 15 to about eight. And then from, and I kept getting these phone calls every two or three days. I mean, uh, you're in the finals. You know, it, was, it was rather like being in the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> yeah. where, and they said, they like yours, they like them. Anyway, came the day I was sitting at home and suddenly the phone rang. Was Harry he said, congratulations. They've chosen your theme. So I said, oh, that's fabulous. He said, well, yes, but there are a few strings attached. As well. He said, first of all, they want it very quickly. You've got to get it uh, we, we're in the studios in a, within a couple of weeks. And I thought, oh, God, because as I say, up until then, I'd only orchestrated for, well, like trio or quartet or something for my brothers and also the little jazz group I had, but not orchestra. And uh, he said, yeah, we've, as it happens, we have a studio booked, London Weekend, have a studio booked with a big orchestra. Uh, it was for the Tommy Steele special. And Tommy has just cried off because he's got something wrong with him. So we're going to cancel him, but we've got to keep the orchestra. So can you do your tune, <laughs> orchestrate it for what was in, in the end, big string section and horns and woodwind, probably about 40 players, including a choir, for your tune. And I thought, put down the phone. I really was stumped because started getting books out of the library and all that stuff. But I had help from the most uh, wonderful, wonderful man, sadly again, no longer with us, who was a mate, was Dudley Moore, mm-hmm. the great Dudley Moore, who, apart from being obviously well-known as a comedian, actor, um, and a wonderful jazz piano player, but also uh, he'd, uh, he'd studied music at, uh, in Oxford, at the Baldwin College, Oxford, and he was, a, he was an organ scholar, as it happens, but a wonderful musician. And he, he knew I was sort of stuck a bit, and he used to come over to my house and give me a, a few sort of pointers about what you should do, what you shouldn't do, and all that stuff. Uh, long and the short of it was I orchestrated it for this not really knowing how it would sound for this big orchestra and we went in the studio um, to record it 
And to my surprise, it worked wonderfully well. <laughs> and the producers loved it and said, yes, great, great, great. Then Harry broke the news to me. He said, you do know that you're going to have to write all the music for each episode, all the background uh, dramatic music. Because, uh, for, and each one was 50, well, initially 26 episodes and another 26. So the 52 episodes of Black Beauty, in which I had to write some different music for each episode. It span over two years, but um, and I, I, it was wonderful for me because I was learning all the time. I was um, uh, recording. I'd write something and then hear it played by these. It wasn't. It was a smaller orchestra we had for the incidental music, um, about fifteen players. But um, I learned my my craft, if you like, through Black Beauty, and uh, you know it went on. To win, uh, uh, as you mentioned early on, it, the, the Ivan Novello Award for Best TV Theme of, of the yeah. Year. And that sort of set me off. Suddenly I was um, in demand as a television composer and kind of went on from there. And it was, uh, yeah, I have Black Beauty to thank for pretty much everything. Yeah. Did you get to see any of the show when you were writing the th- Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Theme, or did you have to sort of do it blind? It's a combination of the two, really. In those days, there was no video. I mean, going back to 1972, uh, there was no video at all. So I had to see an episode at the TV studios on what they called a movieola, which was like a 
don't know if you've ever heard of the word or seen what they look like. It's like a it's like a, a reel of film uh, that you cr- you crammed in as the composer, the c- composer, director, and the producer. We got crammed in this little editing studio, and the screen on which they they well, it was it was through, through this film really rather than they they it, it was tiny it was about as big as a, what would be now a phone <laughs> you all had to cram around and try and see what was happening on the because you I couldn't take it away because part of this big clumping machine called the movie over um so i had to kind of look at the film a couple of times and try and memorize it and with the director saying oh that's that'll be a good when when she falls off the horse you know, you want a big dramatic uh, something or other there that lasts until the next scene, and then and I'm making notes on uh, with a pencil and paper, and the editor would type all this stuff off, and and I'd go home with no you know no film, no video, no nothing, with these notes, and try and remember what happened when, and rely on that when I went in the studios to record, is where the great man Harry Rabinovitz came into his own because. He'd been in the business so long, uh, he was quite elderly even then, but he was able to, um, if I'd written too much music for one particular sequence, he could, by looking at the score, my score, because he conducted in those days, I didn't conduct, he was able to sort of work out where it would be better to speed up the music and slow it down and cut it or elongate if it, if it was too short. And he actually made my music fit to the action of the film, which was miraculous, brilliant. And subsequently, over the years, I, I came to be able to do that. And then once video and uh, came into this, well, I'd then take the tape home, you see, I'd be able to watch it and writing had a little video machine on top of the piano. And uh, I, 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 again, it was great. I mean, now it's easy peasy. Everything is, is they, they have these where you've got a time code imprinted on the film which tells you exactly where you are, what happens when, um, and then to go in and conduct it after that is you know what's coming, really. You know, and by then I was conducting, so I uh, I did it all myself. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's wonderful. I mean, you know, I learned if I'd stayed at the guild hall for another 50 years, I would never have learned what I learned in the by actually pra- doing the practical work of. of of working with musicians and screens in studios. Um, and it gave me the confidence to go on and on and on, really, and do, I mean, I've done hundreds of things of television work, and uh, not so much now, of course, but up until perhaps 10, 10 15 years ago, I was constantly in the studios. And, uh, and it's, it's been, you know, from that viewpoint, it's been very good work. Yeah. And it's so recognisable, isn't it? Even if you haven't seen the show, you know the music. What do you think the secret behind it is? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, the, the, the producer or director, whoever it was, initially said they're looking for, we're looking for a theme which is open air and movement and drama and a memorable tune that sticks in the mind. Um, and the following, they hadn't at that stage, uh, they hadn't even filmed that opening sequence when I wrote the music. So it wasn't like I was able to see what, but I was, it was fairly obvious to me that it would need, I mean, I think one of the curious things was uh, one of the producers said, it's like the Virginian, if you remember, remember that, it's a Western American Western, but, but English, I mean, make pick the bones out of that. You, you go, oh, yes. Uh, yeah, it, so in other words, it was, it, 
when all those Western uh, TV shows filmed, all lots of movement, you know, if you think of any of them. And I thought, well, yeah, well, mine should, shouldn't sound too American. And I, I think having written the tune first, which is what I did, just a, a sim, simple, simple one-finger tune, if you like, and then to record it, you know, with an orchestra, and I put the French horns in, going, rup, 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 and all that thing, the strings racing around, around. It kind of, it, it fitted, it took, uh, it, it, it came pretty naturally uh, to me when I was, uh, when I was orchestrating it. I sort of, I could hear it in my head, how I think it sounded, and it did, and thankfully, as I say, it, it opened an enormous amount of doors for me in terms of television work. Yeah. Is there a particular project during your composing career and just music in general and everything you've done that you're the most proud of? Yeah, good question. I mean, if you, well, as I've said earlier, if you're talking about the, what's the most successful piece of music I've ever written, is far and away the Black Beauty theme for all kinds of reasons. Not just the fact that it's uh, it, it was successful and it's opened doors and it's earned me, you know, a good living. It's the fact that it's been recognised as a, for some reason, as a, a wonderful piece of music. I mean, the, mm. the emails and uh, all kinds still going on today. I mean, literally hundreds of people writing in and saying, we heard your, you know, we remember it when we were kids growing up and yeah. heard your tune and it stayed in our minds. And it's being used for commercials and it's being used for all kinds of things. People actually do rate it probably uh, whether or not it deserves the praise I don't know I think it's a nice piece of music and it worked for the television series over and above that uh, it seems that other people seem to say it's, it's more important than that it's a seriously wonderful piece of music well this is great for me as a composer because you know you as I said before, you write it because with well, I did wrote it thinking about a horse jumping over a hedge or in through water, and I thought, yeah, that will work, that will work, and it worked. But then it's gone on to become something more than that. It's become gone on to become, a, a, you know, people say it's a wonderful piece of music, and it's. I mean, other uh, orchestras have recorded it and they've done it all with small groups and large groups and orchestras. So it's had it. It's it's, it's had. A, a good innings from, from day one. So I would think that's probably the most successful, whether or not I would say it's my favourite piece of music that I've written. Uh, probably not necessarily. Um, there's certain tunes and bits of music that I've written that have never seen the light of day um, that I think that's a seriously nice, nice, nice work. Uh, so I can't pin, uh, at the moment, I can't pinpoint a specific uh, a composition of mine that I'll say, oh yeah, that's it, that's it, I've done it. I kind of I like to write for different occasions. I mean, what what I'm not very good at is just sort of sitting down and writing a tune. Uh, it has to have a, a kind of a, a an aim in view. Either it's for us, for a television, for a song in a show, for uh, a descriptive something or other. But just to write a tune off the top of my head, I find that quite difficult. Mm. Uh, I've got to have something in my mind, in other words, to kind of kickstart the, the mood or uh, what needs to be, what, what it needs to do for the piece. Um, and if I don't get that, I find that pretty difficult just, just to write. So I don't, in answer to your question, I don't think I have 
a specific uh, composition that I would uh, say, yeah, above all, that's the you know thing I'm most proud of. Uh, was with having said that, as I said before, I mean, no question about what's been the most successful piece of music, which is the Black Beauty theme. I mean, the Lovejoy theme is quite nice. I like that, but that's another rather strange story because love. Uh, did you say you saw or you know Lovejoy? You know any of that? Yeah, you've never seen it because it's been. It was on. They keep repeating it on terrestrial uh, television. I think do they? I don't know. Anyway, it's it's on quite a lot. But it, it was a piece of music I wrote for a, a series, nothing to do with Lovejoy. Uh, it, it was turned down. This is years ago. This is probably about thirty odd years ago, possibly longer. And I've written this this. Uh, Tune for a, it was a series. I can't even remember the name of it. It was about a, a schoolmaster, headmaster of a, of a public school, uh, who gets into all kinds of difficulties. It wasn't a very successful series, and I'd written the music, and they said, "No, that's not what we want." So I stuck it in the bottom drawer. This piece of music. Now, when Lovejoy reared its head, my brother, uh, sadly, who's passed away, Mike, the eldest brother, he was a friend of uh, Ian McShane's, the actor, and. Uh, Ian said that they were looking for a theme for Lovejoy. And I dug out this piece of music from the bottom drawer, but not telling them that I'd written it for something else, on the contrary. <laughs> and uh, they all liked it, the producers and McShane and everything. And we, we put it in, uh, we did it as the theme. And then through the whole of the uh, six years of Lovejoy, that was always the opening tune and variations on that theme often for different situations that Lovejoy found himself in. It was a fairly light-hearted, quite funny, actually, uh, series. And I, I like the music because it was set in, in rural, funny enough, in, in Suffolk, where we are. They, uh, the series was, was shot in Suffolk. It was about this wheeler-dealer uh, antique, antique sort of, he was a bit of a villain, really. Um, but it was the combination of the country, the sort of pastoral countryside, and the fact that he was, you know, just on the just on the law side. He was he was fiddle if he could and get away with it. But he was a lovable rogue, I think you'd call him. And I used this theme um, for pretty much every episode. Out they, they they always wanted a little bit of the theme, uh, and it's it's quite a nice theme. But it, and I recorded it with a harpsichord and a string quartet. And, and the horns, so you had the combination of of the sort of pastoral countryside, but with a very contemporary rhythm section, the bass and drums and percussion and everything else. And it seemed to fit the character uh, of Lovejoy pretty well. But again, that was a piece of music that I'd written for a totally different series that had nothing to do with antique dealers. But I didn't tell them that. In fact, they still don't know that they being the stars and producers and everybody else. Uh, but I always, as a, you know, I always have to have something in my mind when I'm writing um, a picture of something, whatever it is, you know, whether it's whether it's old, whether it's new. It's good. I'm not very good at contemporary music. I'll say that now. I mean, I, there's a lot of music that's in the charts or whatever today that I don't understand. To be honest, it's uh, it's passed me by. Um, yeah. to, I, I like I like melodies. I like tunes. I like orchestra. I like you know, I like classical music, and I like 
the great songs of the 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, but are not into anything that's that's popular today, I'm afraid. Mm. Too old, too old. Yeah. Now, you wrote a memoir called Key Changes. What made you want to write a memoir? Well, because I was getting old and older and older. And a couple of people said, uh, well, you should, you know, you've got so many stories about growing up in the business and all kinds of, there's quite some funny stories and uh also, I've travelled all over the place, well, not all over the world, but mm. touring when I was younger, staying in really grotty digs and places and playing awful pianos. And uh, it's, it's sort of funny. Astrid's the writer, the, uh, my wife, she's American, you probably get that. Yeah. Um, and she want, she thought it was time to write one. This was, was about six, seven, eight years ago, maybe more than that. Um, we started... I, I have the tales, I have all the stories and the dates and things, and she made them fit everything. I mean, she's a, mm. she's a really good writer, actually. She's written books and scripts and things. Um, and it, we started and we enjoyed doing it together. Uh, as I say, she'd be at the computer and she said, well, you know, and then what happened? And I said, well, this has happened, so-and-so, so-and-so. And then in 1960, I did this or And she'd put it all down and make it fit nicely. And it's a, it's a really good, we've got some wonderful, quotes of the book from various friends in the business from uh, Alan Aikborn and uh, uh, what's his name, Dame Edna, Barry Humphreys yeah. and uh, Richard Curtis who lives next door to us, the writer who's married wow. to Emma Freud and among I mean, the late Barry Cryer, Maureen Littman wrote quote, we've got them, Ronnie Corbett, all quotes saying how much they enjoy the book. It's, it's difficult, though, when you're not a, a name, it's me I'm talking about, to try and promote it, unless you've got a publisher behind you who's spending money promoting it, which we don't have. We self-published it. And uh, to get it, you know, if I was on television all the time as a performer, it would be much easier to promote the book than uh, actually on television. But uh, uh, as it is, you know, you try and try and flog it off at some gig or something. Have a few books in the corner; people want to buy it. But it's a, it's a, it's a good read. You you probably enjoy it if and when you get round to reading it. I think it's fun. It's fun to do. And what other projects have you got coming up? Are you working on anything at the moment? Too old. To. <laughs> In the business since I was 13, I mean, grief. No, I mean, on the contrary, it's not my choice, really, but having done so much, and in recent years, uh, I don't wish to sound like sour grapes, but I think the standard of, of, of television music, with few exceptions, has has uh, lower has been lowered. It's it's due to eco- economics, I think. Is you know it's expensive to get a big orchestra together now, yeah. but so they tend to rely on. Uh, well, I've got one myself. You know, I'm sitting and I'm talking to you in front of a computer. Yeah. And my computer can I can come out of here in 20 minutes with a full orchestra because it's got you know all the sounds you require all all on computer. Yeah. Um, and they tend television tends to take that cheap route. I mean, it's only shows I suppose like um, uh, what they call it. The big, the big, the big, the big, the big drama Sunday night show about uh, 
Oh, I can't remember the name. Uh, yeah, the, the, there's a few a few sort of quality shows where they actually spend money on an orchestra, but more often than not, particularly if it's a contemporary series, uh, the producers seem quite happy with just sort of musical noise rather than any great orchestral pieces. Or uh, uh, and I think from that viewpoint, it's um, cheap and cheerful. I mean, you can, as I say, I could I could knock out a, a, f- a kind of orchestral theme in half an hour in front of my machine and it's not bad it's not great i could tell whether it was real or computerized excuse me but um i i you know i just and i think consequently my kind of music for television is more or less gone um also it's it's a it's it's more of a young man's or young person's uh, business now. I mean, you know, the good thing is, if you're lucky, as I have been, is these some of these shows get repeated or sold abroad or whatever. And uh, as a composer, you get a nice uh, little royalty now and then. Uh, yeah. uh, every time it's on, in theory, I, I, it's, it's still you find you've got you know you learned about. Out of five pound ninety p in somewhere in the middle of God knows, middle of nowhere abroad, you know, it's it's um it's been a very good uh, means like having a pension really if you're lucky enough. So I, I I can't complain from that viewpoint. But I haven't answered your first question. I'm more or less well, more or less retired now. And what what I'm doing to keep myself busy is um working because uh, I had a few successes in the theatre as a composer. I won awards. Uh, for a musical some years ago uh, called Privates on Parade, which was a comedy musical, and that was shown in London in 1977 and then went to the States and been all over the place. And I, I earned myself another Ivan Novello Award for that, for Best Musical or something, Best English Musical. Um, and I've been doing lots of theatre work and some gets put on, some doesn't. I like I do it almost as a hobby now. Uh, I sit in front of the, uh, the keyboard and fiddle around, and if I get a good tune, or if I work, you normally have to work with somebody on it because I don't write, as I mentioned before, I don't write lyrics and I don't write um, the book, I don't write this, the play. I just mm. I write the music or the songs. But it's a nice, uh, and I don't. I mean, the great thing is with all this computer stuff, I don't have to leave home. That's the best. I used to, everything used to be in London, of course. I was living in Amsterdam, but uh, everything you were in the studios all the time. But now. Uh, you do it um, where we live uh, I, I can do it all in my little studio in uh, the middle of the country and saves me uh, having to get mixed up with public transport around. Yeah, well many thanks for joining us here on the show today, it's been great to talk to you Well, d- delightful Toby, I enjoy talking to you and uh, all the best with your future Yes, you too, good luck with your career Thanks very much Toby, all the best to you Bye bye for now The throbbing pulse of sound, the Toby Gribbon Show.